What would you do if your life took a turn and you were suddenly given more time to be alive? From Well Played, this is Superhumans. 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 Who is a superhuman? Superhumans is what we become when we allow our story to serve as medicine for others. I'm your host, Gotham Galati, better known as Dr. G. As someone who once prescribed pills, I now prescribe stories as a form of medicine. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. David Fagenbaum, who faces death five times. He was diagnosed at a young age with a rare life-threatening disease, and the thought of losing his life early takes a toll. There was a moment when I was in my hospital bed when I saw the telephone cord um, in the room and um, I thought for a moment about about putting the cord around my neck. Against all odds, he attempts to chase his own cure, proving that with perseverance, we can alter the course of our lives and maybe even live in overtime. As you listen, think about how you see yourself in David's story. Before we hit play, just a quick word of caution. Do not consider this medical advice. Please consult with a health professional should you need medical attention. We want to let you know this episode briefly mentions suicidal ideation. If this is something you struggle with, help is available. The National Suicide Prevention Line is listed in our show notes. I'll see you on the other side of the story. So I, I guess near death feels different um, for everyone. I faced death five times. The, the first time that I nearly died, um, it was just too painful. The second time I nearly died, I, I didn't have any sort of high mental capacity. I didn't know what was going on. Um, there was obviously a lot of sadness. but I, I still couldn't really wrap my head around what was happening. Um, and then the third time, it was just really, really quiet. I think I'd start my story back um, as a kid. And um, really the first place that my mind goes is um, to being an eight or nine year old and having just one thing on my mind. And that is playing football. 
and um, I carry a football around with me in school between classes and I throw the football during any break I get outside and when I get home I throw the football some more and it's all it, it's all I can think about thankfully I have amazing parents and they support me and I think that my my mom um, always encouraged hard work it was very much like a a morally driven um, encouragement not just to not just to work hard but also to to do to do the right thing fast forward I'm going into my senior year I trained harder than ever a number of colleges were recruiting me it was mostly Ivy League and Patriot League schools. Fast forward a few months, and, and there I am at Georgetown. And my mom and my dad came up to drop me off. I remember my mom was not really acting like herself. She just seemed a little distant. Um, she was she seemed sad, but she just seemed like her mind was somewhere else. And um, she told me, she said, David, I've been having these really bad headaches, and I, I don't know what they are. Um, and I, and I told her, I said, Mom, you know, I'm, I'm going off to college. This has got to be so stressful for you. This must be stress-related headaches. And um, two weeks later, I got a call from my dad um, where he told me that my mom had, uh, had, had brain cancer. And the next day that I got back to Raleigh, they were taking my mom in for emergency uh, surgery, emergency craniotomy to, to take this brain cancer out of her. So seeing her and being there um, meant that the last thing I wanted to do was to go back to Georgetown. Um, my lifetime goal from the time that I was, uh, you know, a, a little boy was to play college football. And all of a sudden, that dream of playing college football felt like the least important thing in the entire world. And um, I didn't want to go back to college. I didn't want to leave my mom's side. Um, football was the last thing that I could even think about. And um, seeing my mom so sick and knowing what she was going through, um, immediately... Um, almost like a switch turned me from all I could think about was football to all I could think about is how do you destroy diseases like the one that you know is, is uh, likely going to take my mom it was like a switch All of the time and effort that I had previously put into exercise and throwing the football and practice and diet all became, I have to become a doctor and I have to hunt diseases that do these awful things to people. And I want to start with brain cancer, but boy, are there awful diseases out there that shouldn't do to humans what diseases do. Um, and, uh, and then I went to back for, to college for my sophomore year and I knew my mom was getting worse and, 
We had the the first and only conversation we ever had um, that was very much about, you know, her not being here and me promising her that I would be okay. And um, I also promised her, I said, Mom, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to become a doctor to take care of patients just like you. And um, she loved the idea. She said, unconditional love. And she smiled when I told her that. And um, she passed away about two weeks later. Um, around that time, um, I was continuing on my pre-med track and I, um, got a scholarship to go to Oxford and, um, right around the time that I decided my plan for the future was when I met a girl named Caitlin and, um, we met at a bar and we had actually gone to the same high school. So we kind of knew of one another, but we had never met in high school. And, um, I, I got the courage uh, to go over and talk to her. And, um, it was very complicated. I was very much in this all about becoming a cancer doctor when I met Caitlin. And, um, I continued to keep that sort of just laser hyper focus. I was working probably close to 40 hours a week in addition to being a, a full-time medical student. So I was just working crazy hours. And, and of course, we all have the same amount of hours in the day. So that meant that I didn't have as much time for Caitlin or for really anything else. And um, in the midst of this kind of, you know, loving, learning and making progress, um, Caitlin, I guess, really realized and felt like I wasn't making her a priority. So she broke up with me kind of out of nowhere. And um, I remember being totally shocked. And I remember also um, thinking to myself, well, I'm 25 years old. If this is meant to be, it'll work itself out. Um, no reason, no need to fight for the relationship right now. We've got all the time in the world. And um, I kept trying to train and train and train um, to be the best doctor and disease hunter that I could be. So fast forward just a little bit, and I was now um, a third-year medical student, and um, I started noticing that I was having abdominal pain. Um, it was really, really severe, and I noticed I was more tired than I'd ever been, and I was a really hard-working medical student, but I was way more tired than usual, and it, it, it was it was concerning. The fatigue was just unbearable. Um, and I started noticing some little lumps in my neck, um, which felt like lymph nodes. And if I had examined them on a patient, I would have freaked out and been like, we need to get this person scanned right away. I think he has lymphoma. Um, you know, let's run blood tests. But because they were my own, I just said, maybe there's something else. You've got to finish this rotation. You've made it most of the way through this rotation. Just finish it out. You can get it checked out afterwards. 
and I noticed these little red bumps on my skin appearing. Um, he called them uh, blood moles or cherry hemangiomas, and didn't know what they what they meant, but it, I thought that was unusual. And um, I eventually made it to the emergency department, and um, they ran some blood work. And the doctor came in the room and said, David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, and your lungs are shutting down. And we don't know why, but we have to hospitalize you right away. And so they admitted me right away. They did a scan um, soon after being admitted of my body, which revealed that I had enlarged lymph nodes all throughout my body and that I had fluid accumulating in my abdomen and in my around my ankles. And um, so I was um, getting very sick very quickly. I gained about 70 pounds of fluids in my whole body. Um, was just engulfed in fluid. Um, my liver and kidneys were failing, so I needed dialysis. My bone marrow wasn't working, so I needed transfusions daily to keep me alive. I needed a feeding tube because I wasn't eating and I wasn't awake for most of the day. I had a retinal hemorrhage, which made me blind in my left eye. And um, all of this with no diagnosis. And it was absolutely terrifying. Just drifting in and out of consciousness, not knowing what was killing me, when I would die. Um, really the unknown of what this was, was frightening. And they don't have any answers for me. And not only do they not have answers, but when they do have an answer, it conflicts with someone else. And so someone will come in and say, it's this. And the next person will say, it's not this because of this reason. It's that. And the next person is going to say, it's not that. It's this. And um, I just couldn't believe that I was so sick and there were so many things wrong with me, but we couldn't figure out why. And so I spent a lot of time crying a lot. And it was it was sad that I wasn't going to survive, but it was also sad that I was like learning that the system didn't have an answer for me. The doctors let my family know that I was very, very, very sick, and that they should say their goodbyes and be prepared that I could die at at any time. I laid on five deathbeds. I faced death five times. And I remember during one kind of calm and quiet moment, I was reflecting back on my life and um, I was thinking back about what I had done and what I hadn't done. And I realized that I didn't regret a single thing in my life that I had done. The only things that I regretted were things that I had not done or I had not said. And that really hit me really, really hard. I was like, wait a minute. 
I'm not regretting my actions. I'm regretting my inactions. I'm regretting that I didn't fight for Caitlin and I's relationship. I'm regretting that I, that I said, oh, we've got all the time in the world. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And so I promised myself that if I survived this, that I would make my life about doing. And of course, I was already a doer beforehand, but I would make sure that if I thought of doing something, that I would not talk myself out of it. And right around that time that I had this revelation, I just kind of mysteriously started to improve And then I went home uh, to North Carolina to recover. And I just knew this thing was going to come back. And um, sure enough, just a few weeks later, all the symptoms started coming back. The fatigue and the night sweats and the fever and the abdominal pain and the the nausea and the vomiting. And um, it, it all came back this time really with a vengeance. And... Um, I started getting really, really sick really quickly. And I was admitted to the hospital again. And this time they did a lymph node biopsy. And lymph node biopsies are what you do to try to figure out what type of lymphoma someone has. And so they cut out my lymph node. And um, over the next couple of days while we were waiting for the results, I just kept getting more and more and more sick. And uh, finally, the results came back and it was... Uh, my doctor's uh, nurse practitioner came in the room and said, uh, David, I don't know what this disease is, but you have something called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. It's not lymphoma. I don't know what it is. So you'll have to look it up, but at least it's not lymphoma. And um, this happened to be like the first moment in, in months that I was by myself. And so I, I went to Wikipedia and I remember um, looking at the Wikipedia page and seeing that it said that Less than 20% of patients with my disease uh, survive for five years. And basically, um, it was a death sentence as a 25-year-old. And I, I knew that this disease was awful because it had almost killed me once. And um, I was so, so sick at this stage. Um, with multi-organ failure that the doctors told my family again this time a different team of doctors that, that i likely wasn't going to survive and so i said goodbye to my family again and um, this time my family decided to have a priest come into the room and to administer my last rites to me i was raised catholic and uh, my mom was a very devoted catholic and um, they felt like it was the right thing to do. And, and in hindsight, I, I think it was the right thing as well. And so a priest came in and, and, and gave me my last rites. And I, I prepared to, to die now for the second time. And it was terrifying. I remember um, just being so scared, um, so scared to die and uh, so sad that I wouldn't be able to be with the people that I loved and that I wouldn't be able to make the memories that I wanted to make, being a dad and having a family, um, maybe getting married to Caitlin. Those sort of things were the things that I thought about a lot. 
There was a moment when I was in, in my hospital bed. When I saw the telephone cord um, in the room and um, I thought for a moment about about putting the cord around my neck um, because of the pain that I was going through, because of the pain that my family was going through watching me go through all that that I was going through and um I actually uh thought about that I, I didn't make any movements I didn't reach for it but I thought about it and there was some peace in thinking about the pain being gone about the the, the knife-like pain everywhere going away there was some peace in my family no longer having to watch what I was going through and there was a moment where where it seemed like the right thing to do. But kind of as quickly as that thought came was how quickly um, I immediately talked myself out of it and said, the pain that your family is going through will, will only be worsened by doing something like that. And though I didn't think that I had much life left, I didn't want that to be the the last memory that my family would have of me and that they would have to live with and that they would have to take on with them. They would have to take the burden of. And so I stopped looking at the telephone cord and I went back to fight mode. And um, thankfully they started chemotherapy and thankfully the chemotherapy saved my life. And so after another few weeks, I was able to leave the hospital. And um, though the chemo saved my life, um, I was not at all satisfied. I knew I needed to find out where the world's expert was. And um, so I found out that the world's expert was in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And um, so my dad and I traveled out to Little Rock together. When we got there, my doctor came up with this this plan for all the things we were going to do, all the drugs that I was going to get and the treatments and the tests. And it was just awesome to have a plan. And while I was out there, I noticed that I was feeling a little bit more tired and it felt kind of like a relapse was coming on. But it's like, it can't be, you know, I'm on chemo and just got a dose a couple days ago. This can't be a relapse. Um, but sure enough, I got really, really sick now for the third time. And, um, I spent the next seven weeks hospitalized, um, needing dialysis and transfusions and really nearly dying for the third time. And it was a really, really scary and sad and somber time. Uh, I'm with the world's expert and the world's expert is struggling to stop this thing. And um, there was a real turning point right around New Year's Eve of, of 2010. So at this stage, I'd been hospitalized for almost five months um, in and out of the hospital and um, now had nearly died three times. But this third time, I'd gotten this multi-agent combination of chemotherapy. And um, it was New Year's Eve. And I, you know, I was ready for a new year. 2010 was tough. <laughs> I was ready for 2011. And um, at about 8 p.m., my dad and I decided to go for a walk around the hematology oncology floor and uh, we noticed that there was a guy who was sitting in the family waiting area 
who looked like he was kind of drunk on New Year's Eve. It looked like he'd been partying that night. And um, he was kind of swaying in his chair. And on our next lap around the floor, we saw that he had fallen onto the ground. And so my dad ran over to him and, and helped him back into his chair. And he looked at my, my dad and I, and he said, thanks so much. Good luck to you and your wife. We're like, wife? What is he, what's he talking about, wife? And then I looked at my belly <laughs> and I realized that this guy thought that I was my dad's pregnant wife. <laughs> and the two of us just burst into laughter. Um, I was even crying. I was laughing so hard. And I turned to my dad. I said, man, dad, you've got an ugly wife. And, uh, and we just laughed so hard together. And I could see why you might've thought I was a pregnant woman. My belly was huge. I had 10 liters of fluid in my belly that was getting tapped every other day where they were pulling 10 liters of fluid out and then it would just fill back up. Um, I, I looked like I was pregnant and I was bald from chemo. I had a mask on because I was so immunocompromised. Um, so I can see where, where he was coming from, but it just made us laugh so hard. And, and thankfully that was a real turning point where I started to really um, start to feel better. And I was still in the hospital for another about, I think, five weeks. Um, so it was a while before I'd be out, but, um, but I got better every day. And um, one thing I did during that time where I was getting better every day was, um, was just start reaching out to Caitlin and to try to um, tell her about how, how much I regretted that I hadn't fought for a relationship and how much I wished that we had um, been able to spend that time together. And I told her that I felt like I was in overtime. And overtime, of course, is extra time in a sporting event that you didn't think you'd have. Um, but there's extra meaning and there's extra clarity in overtime because the clock is running low and you have to be totally focused on what's important. And for me, I explained to her, I said, you know, I've, I'm living in this mentality of think and do it. All I can do is think about you. So I need to, I need to do everything I can to get us back together. <laughs> um, but I also am living in this sense of overtime where I have clarity about what's important to me. And, um, and she was important to me. And so I got out of the hospital and, um, Caitlin came to visit me and, uh, I had just as much fluid in my belly and I was as bald as ever. And, um, and she just wanted us to get back together just as much as I did. And um, so we started dating again. And around that time, I was also started on an experimental drug that I hoped would keep my disease in remission. And um, this was really important for me because um, it was the only drug that has ever undergone a randomized control trial for Castleman disease. Um, no one had ever studied uh, a drug through a trial like this for Castleman's and it was looking really promising. And so I had actually gotten it while I was sick and it didn't work um, when I was sick, but we thought, well, maybe it'll work to keep me in remission and it'll prevent a relapse. Um, and then about a year after I got out of the hospital, all of my symptoms came back, everything. And um, I was in complete denial. I was telling Caitlin, you know, it can't be a relapse. I'm on this drug. It must be 
maybe I've got a cold or the flu. Maybe there's some other reason that my immune system is making me feel like crap and another reason that I'm, I'm feeling so sick. And of course, we did blood work and the blood work confirmed that I was in fact relapsing on the only drug in development for my disease. And um, we flew to Little Rock, my dad and I, and Caitlin, now my girlfriend, and... Um, as soon as I got to Little Rock, they started me on chemotherapy. And um, I remember my doctor coming in just a, a few minutes after starting the chemo and him explaining to me the plan. And that was that we're going to give you chemo now. And um, we're not sure what we're going to do next because you've now failed to respond to the only drug in development. Um, but, you know, but let's get this thing in, under control. You know, let's get you and your, your life and, or your health under control and then we'll figure out what to do next. And I started asking my doctor questions um, like, okay, I didn't respond to this one drug, but why? And he said, no one knows. I said, okay, well, what causes my immune system to do what it does? Like why out of nowhere does my immune system just start attacking my vital organs? He said, no one knows. I said, well, what other drugs are there in development that you know maybe could help me? He said, there aren't any. And I said, well, are there any promising leads? Are there things that we could develop drugs to target that could maybe be helpful? And he said, no one knows. And I remember that moment so vividly to go from being this optimistic pen med student who just kind of believed that doctors were out there solving problems and figuring things out to all of a sudden realizing that for some diseases, my disease included, and actually for many diseases, especially rare diseases, there are no answers and there are no glimmers of hope um, to help us to cope with the fact that there are no answers. And there's this one analogy that I, I like to use. I feel like I previously had this, what I call the Santa Claus theory of civilization. And that's that I believed that for every problem that affects us, that there must be a team of people, elves and Santa Clauses working to solve those problems. And that those problems get solved right in time to be delivered at your doorstep to help you with whatever you're facing. And all of a sudden, here I am talking to the Santa Claus for Castleman disease, the person with all the answers. And he's telling me, no, David, there are no solutions and there's nothing on, on its way. And I felt completely alone. I previously thought I just had to get to the world's expert because the world's expert's going to know everything. And, and what I learned was that the world's expert only knows however much the world knows. And if the world doesn't know the answer to your problem, then the world's expert doesn't know the answer to your problem. You can't Google it. You can't find the person with the answer. You can't pray for a doctor to have clarity about an answer if the answer is not yet known by anyone in the world. And this was such a frightening concept for me 
um, because it basically meant that there, for a lot of issues, there was no lifeline. And um, so when my doctor left the room, I was just totally devastated. And I turned to my dad and my sisters and Caitlin and I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify a treatment and maybe even a cure for this disease. And they kind of looked at me with this like half like smile, but more like, you know, we're here for you, Dave. Um, you know, we know you, you can do it, but it, it was more like, let's just get through what you're going through right now. There's no time for heroics. Let's just get you through this chemotherapy so that you can survive for the fourth time this deadly disease. But I was totally 100% serious that I was going to dedicate my life. I wasn't... Um, I wasn't under the false pretense that I was actually going to be able to make a difference. But um, to use a quote from Dumb and Dumber, I knew that there was a 0% chance that I was going to be able to survive if I didn't do something. I had just been told literally that there were no promising leads. There was nothing else coming down the pipeline. And I knew that if I tried, that there was maybe like a, a one in a million chance and I guess my response to that was, so you're saying there's a chance. And um, and I decided to take that chance. I decided that I, I might end up spending my last few months alive chasing after a solution that I'm never going to find and never actually going to help anyone. Or I may spend these few months chasing after a solution and maybe making some progress that probably won't help me, but but maybe will help someone else. Or maybe the third option, which is that I'll chase after a solution and I'll actually find something, something that could keep me alive and, and maybe keep other people alive too. And so when I got out of the hospital, the first thing I did was, um, the chemotherapy saved my life now for the fourth time. And the first thing I did was reach out to Arthur Rubenstein and say, Arthur, I, as you know, I have this orphan disease. I'm on this orphan drug. It didn't work. There are no more drugs in development. There are no more options. There are no more leads. Um, will you support me if I dedicate my life to trying to find a drug and try to make progress? And he said that he would. And we quickly learned that the castle in the disease space was way worse off than we ever could have imagined. So it was really a, a disaster. Uh, and then I relapsed. And um, now I've relapsed. Now this is the fifth time I'm relapsing. This time um, I was engaged to Caitlin. Um, we were supposed to get married in a few months. And all I could think about was making it to our wedding day. I just wanted to make it to May 24th, 2014. And so again, I got chemotherapy. And again, for the fifth time, I, I spent weeks hospitalized and almost died. Um, but thankfully, the seven different chemotherapies saved my life. And I left the hospital and um, my focus shifted from Castleman disease as a disease to if I'm going to make it to May 24th, 2014, I need to find a drug that can save me now. Um, this is not a problem to solve sy systematically or systemically. 
This is a, I need to find a drug that I can start putting into my body so that I can make it to our wedding day. And um, I had been performing experiments in the lab over the previous few months, and I had been collecting samples on myself um, over the, over that time. And um, my experiments led me to a particular communication line in the immune system called the mTOR pathway, mTOR. And it's really important for proliferation of immune cells. It's important for your immune cells to communicate with one another. And I ran an experiment that confirmed my hunch and that showed that in fact there was increased mTOR activation in my lymph node tissue compared to controls or compared to normal people. And so now we had data to suggest that this communication line was turned on and now we had in front of me black and white data to show that it, it in fact was on and um, thankfully a drug that was developed 30 years ago for kidney transplantation that had never been used before for Castleman disease that I wanted to try to get my hands on. Um, because it was already FDA approved for another condition, I could get my hands on it. And so I started myself on this drug and I noticed within just a few days that um, I was just coming off of this bad relapse and I was still pretty sick, but I was noticed within a couple of days that I was starting to feel better. but. That wasn't good enough. I, I I couldn't just think that I was feeling better and and trust and that that certainly was not good enough for me. It was going to become a test of time. I was going to need to see how long it would be before my next relapse before I could really get a sense as to whether this drug was working. And really importantly, during this remission, I made it to Caitlin and I's wedding day. We we made it to May twenty fourth, twenty fourteen. And I have such a big smile on my face right now because it was such a happy day. And so the happiness, everyone is happy on their wedding day. Absolutely. But when you just a few months before were crying because you didn't think you were going to make it through the night and that you knew you weren't going to survive, that low when you combine that with getting married or a high like that, the difference between where you were to where you are um, creates this delta force where you are just so happy. And I swear everyone at that wedding just smiled the entire time um, because it was something that we didn't think that we would ever see. I didn't think I would ever make it to that day. And um, I remember even when the the, the priest uh, told us we could put our rings on one another, um, we both said, I do. I thought that he was going to say, you can kiss the bride. And um, and he hadn't said it yet, but I, I thought that was coming next. I remember I went in to kiss Caitlin and um, Caitlin stiff-armed me right in front of the whole congregation and, and everyone burst into laughter. And the priest assured me that there would be time for that. And um, I think it's it's actually a pretty good reflection of, of how I was feeling about life at the time. I wasn't used to having time and I wasn't used to the idea that like, you know, we could do something later and we didn't need to do it right away. And so we, we got married and um, I continued to push forward Castleman disease research. 
And we started making real exciting progress for the field. So now I was on this drug, serolimus. I made it to my wedding day. We didn't know when it was going to stop working, but I made it to my business school graduation day. I made it 15 months in remission. I remember I'm um, just kind of counting, you know, every day and, and I still count every day. Um, but starting to get a sense that maybe this drug is going to work. And um, when I graduated, I took a faculty position at Penn uh, where I would be able to start up a lab focused on Castleman disease. And I could serve as associate director of Penn's Orphan Disease Center, so orphan rare diseases, and, um, and really focus on advancing research for Castleman's, for rare diseases, and really to, to be the disease hunter that I set out to be when um, when my mom was first diagnosed with brain cancer, where I could spend my life focused on how do we get closer to solving and eliminating diseases that are causing so much suffering and harm in the world. So this drug that's saving my life, I'm literally here talking about my life because of the drug that I identified that is saving my life. It's also saving other Castleman disease patients' lives. By... By me surviving, by me finding this drug for me, it's now helping other patients to survive. My mom's death was unequivocally awful. My diagnosis and suffering from Castleman disease, unequivocally awful. And in the midst of all of this work and all of these challenges and um, and, and all that we're doing, um, I had the, the most amazing... Um, life experience uh, and that was when Caitlin and I had our daughter Amelia I think there's something extra special when you just absolutely knew to your core that you were never going to see that day and not only did you know that you were never going to make it to that day but everyone around you every doctor every family member every friend knew you weren't going to survive, knew that you were never going to see the day that you would have a child. Um, because I am in overtime and I don't know how much more time I'll have and I need to cherish each of these moments. Hey, welcome back. Dr. G here. As of the release of this episode, David is doing well. And he's continuing his crusade as a disease hunter to help others survive. Having beaten the odds, David is using his overtime to cherish the loves of his life. His wife, Caitlin, and daughter, Amelia. 
His story shows us that life is not only worth fighting for, but also worth trying for. We're thankful to David for giving us the chance to pause and contemplate the unexpected gifts we've received in life and those yet to come, especially if given over time. We'd like you to know that David recently wrote a book documenting the details of his journey. It's called Chasing My Cure, and it's already a national bestseller. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link. And we have a lot more happening for you behind the scenes. So once again, here's our senior producer, Pamela, to tell you more about it. Hey everyone, it's Pamela. We've been getting really, really beautiful feedback from you and some requests as well. And the number one thing that we're hearing from you is that you want a place to connect more deeply with what you're hearing at Superhumans, which is great because Gotham and I are in the process of developing a community for you. But here's the thing. We don't want to just create this community for you. We want to create it with you. So join us. You can get all the details by signing up for our newsletter at superhumans.health. We're so excited to shape this community with you. Again, that's superhumans.health. In our next episode, you'll hear from Alexandra Drain, who through unforeseen circumstances becomes witness to the often thankless job of caregiving. She shows us that any act of care can and should be celebrated. I actually think we have to start sharing more with each other, more openly, how hard life can be in general, but certainly life right now. Caregivers are so complicated. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help new listeners discover how story can be a form of medicine. Superhumans is made with love by a tribe of creative artists. Our senior producer and show co-creator is Pamela Rothenberg. Sound engineering and design is provided by Rob Spate. Pre-production audio engineering is provided by Jay Wujun Yao. Community and social media is managed by Tara Bika. Our original theme music is composed by Daniel Brunel. And a special thanks to our creative collaborators, Hatch. From Well Played, I'm Dr. G, and you are loved.